Good day, Brigade. This is Bobby, and welcome to the podcast. Today we are going to be going over some interesting tricks that politicians use and some of the history behind some advertising in, well, actually in America, that has some really less than desirable origins and is used in pretty much all advertising everywhere in the United States, at least. But first, before we go into all that, a little bit of news for you. Indigenous people in Brazil are protesting a bill curtailing their land rights, which they rightfully should, considering that what it would do is roll back a ton of land and open it up for development from non-indigenous peoples and just really anyone that the Brazilian government really chooses. Further complicating things are wildcat gold miners in the area that are really doing some damage to the indigenous lands already there. Other news bits for you, we got, surprisingly, U.S. Congress voting to make Juneteenth a federal holiday, commemorating the end of slavery. Great. Honestly, personally, I was kind of surprised that passed the Senate. I mean, I'm glad it did. It's great. We should acknowledge this and see it as only a first step towards trying to create a more equitable nation-state for everybody. And for a little third bit of news, Putin and Biden met and agreed to some first steps on cybersecurity and arms control. The pictures of them shaking hands show that neither one of them is exactly super trusting of the other. They got smiles, yeah, but you can clearly tell they're kind of faking it. <laughs> Anyways, to get into our main thing here, we're going to be talking some interesting moves that politicians use, such as gerrymandering, buzzword association, and fun advertisements, and lying by omission through distorting facts and such. Get started in this. I'm sure you all understand what gerrymandering is. Basically, it's the redistricting of a state's legislative districts and congressional districts, usually in favor of one party or the other. Lots of states have combated this by creating independent commissions or commissions that have both parties and a nonpartisan group involved, such as the state of Colorado, which is having some interesting drawings as I'm sure many states are right now. But gerrymandering is definitely one of those real big problem things that politicians often use to stay into power. In fact, real often, they draw these districts, districts specifically to a company for the specific politicians who hold these seats. And if these are seats being gained or lost, they try to make the other side lose the seat as much as they can. This usually happens when one side gets control of the state's legislature, which gives them effective control over how redistricting occurs. Redistricting occurs in the United States every 10 years. That's why it's really big every time it happens. Because some really big radical changes happen. You're determining for the next 10 years how exactly the composition of government will look. And oftentimes, through mass gerrymandering, we can already predict, like, I'd say 70 to almost 90% of what's going to happen. 
That's why we have specific swing states and things like that. That's where these things are like the most balanced, where there are both parties and heavily balanced in, for that matter. Like actually in the state of Colorado, many people see it as a red state turning blue. In reality though, it's kind of this strange balance between the outlying areas in the metro area. The metro area tends to lean heavily de democratic. It's important to note that a lot of people in Colorado register as independents, as up to 40%. That, I myself am technically an independent, actually. It's understandable why Colorado kind of chose a committee to redraw its districts. And this is kind of one of those things we need to deal with in gerrymandering, is the whole redistricting concept. One, we need to get more people involved. We definitely need nonpartisan people involved on this. And quite frankly, personally, I'm in favor of a more simplified redistricting method. Not so much where people get together, convene in a room, and discuss demographics and all that, but rather just simple redistricting. Based on population, not affiliation. As long as each of the districts are balanced population-wise, you should find a reasonable median for which these people can be represented. Oftentimes, many people are actually not necessarily so hardline about their parties. Nowadays, people seem to be a little bit more about it, but this is likely due more to the hype behind the whole situation right now. American politics is at an all-time high and at an all-time heated moment. This does not happen all the time. Usually people are largely apathetic to what happens in our political system because as of last, before everything happening in 2008 and all that, before that, it was pretty steady going. Things were largely predictable, you knew what both parties were largely for, what they were going to do, and for the most part, a lot of their beliefs and ideals seemed to largely overlap. There were only small differences on largely who administers, states or federal. And this goes back to a long historical debate within the United States in general. Because Jeffersonian democracy versus the Hamiltonian economic system, one favored agrarianism, one favored the urban centers. Sound familiar? <laughs> and ultimately this feud's been carrying on. The sides have traded some views and some views have been dropped overall in some parts, but all in all, those two things have largely remained is urban versus rural. And that in itself is kind of a problem with this whole system. We're not really acting as a group. We're not acting as two players of a team, greater team. We're acting as two rivals trying to wrestle control from one another. A large problem with the way our system is set up right now, actually as Duverger's law kind of limits us to where we're at. For those of you who aren't familiar, we do mention Duverger's law quite a bit, but basically Duverger's law is a tendency within a majoritarian democracy in which you have a tendency for choices to narrow down to an A or B paradigm due to the fact that people find it more advantageous to join one larger coalition than to try to separate out their votes as much as possible. Usually through this, deals are brokered, alliances are made, and big tent parties prevail. Which is why we tend to argue that 
the two national parties aren't necessarily national parties, but more rather confederation parties of much smaller Democratic and Republican parties scattered throughout the states, many of which have unifying ideals, which tend to be put on the national platform while they also have their own local interests. Actually, a large local interest, particularly within the state of Colorado and large parts of the West, is the debate on land rights, land usage, land taxation, and the building and rapid development of things that we really don't need. Like extravagant housing when we're having an affordable housing crisis. Do we really need to be building three bedroom lofts for people who are moving in from out of state who have millions of dollars? when we have native population being priced out of their own homes? We think not. That's basically a whole issue on its own. It deals with gentrification. Gentrification is a really fucked up process, by the way. <laughs> like, ugh. It's a horrible another can of worms all to itself. Anyways, we're kind of getting off topic, though we feel like we've covered effectively the whole gerrymandering thing. Another thing politicians like to use, and you're probably used to this, in fact, so used to it you probably don't even notice it anymore, is buzzword association. Buzzword association is god-awful. Oh my god. Like, half the time, when a politician mentions a word, say like, a Republican mentions socialism, or even a, D a member of the DSA mentions socialism. They're not talking about actual socialism. By the way, for if you're concerned, socialism is a mode of economy in which the means of production are transferring over to the people and workers as a whole rather than staying within the hands of a few oligarchic private interests. Usually this can happen through a variety of processes that can either be like cooperatives, municipalization, nationalization, you know, that kind of sort of thing. But in the end, somehow it ends in the common, tries to end in the common interest. Socialism tends to be a segue ideology towards communism and not really so much a standalone ideology on its own originally. However, in America, we've come to interpret a form of socialism as, if you're more right-wing, tend to be more of a high taxation, tax everything thing, completely inaccurate. Or if you're like someone of the member of the DSA, hypertax the wealthy, redistribute the taxation towards public services and things like that. A little closer, but not quite accurate still. In fact, we're talking something more along the lines of like, an interventionist economy. We're talking like Sismondian stuff here. For those of you who don't know, Sismondi was a French economist of the 16th century who was one of the first people to advocate for the idea of taxation and economic interventionism. Now, the ideas of taxation and such have been around for a while, but he was really the one who pushed for the idea of economic interventionism so that merchants would be working at least in somewhat for the interest of the state. Or what would become the state, more rather as the idea of nationalism, nation-states, and that kind of thing wasn't really fully developed yet. But basically, a lot of people credit his ideas eventually leading to various forms of strains of socialism. In fact, the famous socialist philosopher Rosa Luxemburg even took some of his ideas and 
publish them within the accumulation of capital. Very, very dry book, but my God, if you can read it, it you can learn a lot. <laughs> like, most people don't know Rosa Luxemburg. Actually, what I named my cat after, whom I, who I named my cat after. That's why her name is Rosa. But Rosa Luxemburg is a very fascinating revolutionary socialist who had a very, very interesting life. Like, if you don't know her, I insist you read a lot up on her. In fact, one of her writings would be very relevant to the United States today, particularly with those who try to use the label socialism. She had a, her most famous work, Reform or Revolution, which was actually a critique of a German politician's idea of a more reformist thought of socialism, which is where we eventually gained the concepts of revisionism within the communist strain of thought, versus the revolutionary socialists like Rosa Luxemburg, Vladimir Lenin, Trotsky, those guys who believed that the only route to socialism was through revolution, and that a capitalist state could never be turned truly socialist. And argumentatively, she was completely right. Again, that's not either here nor there. Sorry, we are getting off topic. We do have an outline. It's just, there's a lot we can go on for like the history of all of this. But buzzword association, going back to the main point, a lot of words in politics are thrown around, particularly with concerning ideology that are used wildly inaccurately. Like a Republican calling a Democrat a liberal is probably one of the most humorous things ever, given that the concept of market liberalism and liberal democracy is probably a more Republican Party idea originally. I mean, not so much now with the Trump infestation, but hey. They at least advocated for it at a time. Another thing that politicians like to use, and I'm sure you know about this very well, is the idea of like distorting or hiding facts or even going as far as by lying by omission. Lying by omission, of course, being not telling the whole truth, deliberately to mislead your thought. Now, I'm sure you all know about that with politicians. My God, they're so famous for it, it's ridiculous. That's why there are jokes about lying politicians. Now, what I really want to get into is the concept within political advertising. The history of why advertising and politics kind of just go hand in hand. No matter where you are, really. I mean, propaganda technically is a form of advertising. What you're doing, though, is advertising an individual and ideas. The way advertising in politics is handled, though, nowadays is, shall we say, disgusting. Like, my god. The goals of advertising typically tend to be to get you to think about an idea to potentially buy or potentially get something, potentially want to get, have something. You don't have to necessarily actually get it or anything. They just want to grab your attention and make you think about it. This kind of finds its roots in a really, really interesting spot. Many of you probably don't know this, but modern advertising techniques go back really far back and actually touch on Freudian psychology. In fact, Freud's cousin, unfortunately I don't remember the name right now, I'm sorry, actually took a lot of Freud's ideas about psychology and the influencing of people 
and started spreading them to local businesses within Austria. Try to promote, hey, here's a really good way to get people attached to wanting to buy your products. And it worked amazingly. Now, I'm sure you all know that there was an interesting time in Austria's history where it had this thing called Anschluss. Basically, Nazis swallowed it. To be perfectly fair, Austria didn't really put up much of a fight. But all the same, there was Anschluss. And a nasty old man by the name of Adolf Hitler figured out about these ideas. And he realized, hmm, what if I were to use this instead of to promote a product to promote my ideals and my beliefs? And thus, modern propaganda was born. And this is kind of where the genesis of advertising and politics begins. This is kind of where they meet their beginning fusion. Now, I'm sure nowadays a lot of you read, like, Nazi propaganda and stuff, and see propaganda and stuff on, like, history, TV, and all that stuff, and look at it and go, how could anyone fall for this? Well, one could ask you the very same question about many of the products you buy. If you think you buy things on impulse, there's a good chance advertising was involved in that impulse buy. If you're buying something because you just simply find it appealing, there's a good chance subliminally advertising was involved. That's kind of why we make things flashy and eye-catching. Back in the 40s and 30s, that's what Nazi propaganda was. And for people who were disgruntled and upset and fret with World War I and the whole Jewish conspiracy going around Europe at the time, my God, that pervaded for a long time, by the way. Like, it goes back and finds roots way, way back. Like, I'm not even going way back here, but just within Hitler's lifetime, you have... Yeah, he would have had to have been born in 1905. You have the... Uh... I believe it's called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a Russian propaganda piece against Jews, and it's incredibly anti-Semitic and also heavily, heavily plagiarized. Yeah, weird. Nazis are cool with plagiarizing each other. Anti-Semites are cool with plagiarizing each other. Anywho... There were a lot of interesting things that led to these whole propaganda pieces growing even more. If you compare things from before, like, the 20th century in advertising to after the 20th century in advertising, and even after the 40s and 50s, actually into the 50s, I'm sure all, a lot of you are familiar with the concept of Mad Men, or the show of Mad Men. Yeah. A lot of that actually originated from these Nazi propaganda ideas. They took the psychology and were like, hey, people started using this in Austria before Nazis came for selling products and it did well. And then Nazis used it for making propaganda and it worked really well. Now, if we tweak it for modern America, adjust it slightly and create an idea called the American dream and push for it, 
we can make a shitload of money. Well, one can imagine that was probably the thinking anyway. <laughs> but, yeah. If you want to know why modern advertising seems to be so weird yet so effective and very flashy, it's because of Freud's cousin taking Freud's psycholo psychology notes on some influencing of humans. In turn, Nazis got it, and then after the war, American advertisers were like, I want that. To be fair, there are a lot of things we took from Nazi Germany that actually helped us a lot in the Cold War. We took many of their scientists, used NASA, and created rocket ships and made ourselves made our way to the moon. We did that with the Nazi scientists. Velcro? Take Nazi scientists. I mean, this was after the whole Nazi regime, and you gotta keep in mind that. The Nazi regime forced a lot of people to do things they were not comfortable with. There were many people on board, there were many people caught up in the storm, there were many people who were afraid for their lives, and then there were many, 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 many more, millions more, that were straight up considered undesirable for no good reason, and exterminated. Sorry, we're getting off topic again. Godwin's Law, right? Always going towards not going towards Nazis. Well, I guess not quite Godwin's law. So we see these are problems, and they are very prevalent throughout our uh, political and just economic system in general. At least for the politics, what can we do about this? Well, we already talked about ending gerrymandering through a more simplified representation method. You could also, and this is going to get on the uh, levels of a modest proposal here, but there is technically a constitutional amendment on the table from the original writing of the Constitution that would actually create a set limit for members of Congress, or create a mathematical formula to set members of Congress. Interestingly enough, if taken verbatim, and I believe nine states have already actually ratified this, Way back, way, way, way back when they were just forming the United States Constitution, obviously. But they still haven't removed their ratification, which they can do. In fact, originally, this amendment was almost ratified, but was short one state. For the longest time in its history. Until, you know, we started massive westward expansion, states started growing a lot. Anywho, the amendment which was technically the first amendment proposed, not the first accepted, first proposed, was an amendment that created a formula for determining the number of representatives per state and the number of representatives per in Congress overall. If this were enacted today, and I'm not saying it should be, I'm just saying that in a way this could end gerrymandering. If it were enacted today, the number of congressional members would go from 435 in the House to about 6,100. I mean, there's a specific number, but we're not going to really do the math now. We're just going to give you an approximation because this formula does lead to this. And I do insist you look this up. Because it is a real proposed amendment that is still active on the table. 
And it can't just be eliminated unless these states nullify their ratification and Congress decides, all right, we're not looking at this anymore. It could still be enacted. But you could raise the number of congressional seats up to about the 1,100 number and effectively end gerrymandering by making gerrymandering logically preposterous. I'm not saying you'd make it the best idea. And in fact, you would quite literally create the largest legislative body in the world. If I remember correctly, China only has about 2,000 members in their Congress. You know, the party steering committee and all that. I don't know what exactly you call it. I think it's like Chinese parliament or something like that. Anyway, they got like 2,000 some members, all part of the Communist Party, obviously, or some variation of a Communist Party. You know, you gotta look democratic at least. Anywho, it would create the largest legislative body in the world. It would make gerrymandering preposterous. Odds of third party candidates getting elected would go way up. As neither of the two parties could financially manage that many different campaigns at once. Am I saying it's a good idea? Not necessarily. I'm just saying it is the modest proposal on the table. The name may be misleading, but if you're familiar with the writing, a modest proposal, trust me, it's very accurate. (laughs) Actually, I'd still say the modest proposal is a little bit more extreme than this. I mean, after all, suggesting the Irish people eat their babies to abate famine is pretty fucking crazy. Of course, he was using this to make a rhetorical point. Jonathan Swift did not actually believe the Irish people should be eating their babies. But the idea behind the modest proposal is it's supposed to be a really crazy idea. Though technically this is still plausible. I don't think anyone would reasonably try it, because my god. It's, It's just ridiculous. Another thing we need to do is use more clear, accurate definitions for words that have a more buzzy potential, like your ideology words, your politically charged terms, and things like that, and correct people when they err. I know, nobody likes the whole, oh, actually, kind of idea, but when it comes to politics, we kind of need to be very disciplinarian. It's kind of a necessity if you want to effectively run a government. If you don't hold some sort of discipline or restraint, you get ineffectiveness, wantonness, and, well, so far, a good chunk of the 117th Congress, 116th Congress, 115th Congress, you get the point. We also should create and maintain real consequences for those who lie, spread misinformation, disinformation, and do other things like that for political gains. You can do things like find campaigns, packs, and super packs, and candidates who do this kind of stuff, but it has to be a decent find that draws people to not do that. You know, it can't be like a simple $500 fine for lying or something. And I'm not saying like being misinformed should be what is consequent. I mean, this is something that should definitely be like looked at and investigated to make sure that you're not deliberately trying to spread misinformation. 
If you're not deliberately trying to do that, you're not going to be fine. But if you do continually spread misinformation and disinformation and things like that, especially in a campaign, you should be fined for that. Because you're kind of undermining democracy there. So, uh, you're using democracy to undermine it there, are you? Yeah, let's not do that. You can do this by fining all these people. And continue the allowance of deplatforming on social media. Actually, we have a whole thing about social media and how we think it should change. Personally, we believe it should go towards a cooperative and people should own their profiles, be responsible, follow a set community guideline, but if they fail to adhere to that, they still have the possibility of being deplatformed. It's a whole thing, and we'll go into it in greater detail another time. It's much more expansive than that. Another thing we gotta do, and we mentioned this earlier, and we just gotta do it, is we've got to destroy Duverger's law tendency. We've got to stop it from affecting our politics and our political system. Right now, we have party within a party concept running rampant. And it's in large part because that's the only way you can politically survive if you have a diverging view from the two major viewpoints. And, well, it doesn't make anybody happy. Many of these people don't want to have to go towards a particular party and have that label and the stigma of, oh, you're a Democrat, or, oh, you're Republican. And it doesn't need to be that way. There are easy ways you can change this, and you can either do it by promoting ranked choice and ranked list voting or consensus voting and things like that within the states. It's as simple as that. You just gotta switch to a system that's more accommodating. And quite frankly, our nation's too diverse to have only two political parties working things. Our ideals are way too diverse. Our thoughts, our beliefs, it's too diverse. Having this two-party system is ineffective, and quite frankly, it's crushing us. We basically get a choice of ineffective government or one-party state, in which there's one party dominating everything while the other one has to sit back and complain. I mean, the only real difference between that and a totalitarian one-party state is that you're actually allowing for someone to have an opinion. It's not like their opinion matters because you hold political control anyway. But yeah, I think people are sick of either ineffective governance or one-party state. I know I am. We've got to also start allowing third parties more into organizations that are controlled between the two majors. You know that organization that organizes debates for the presidential elections? Yeah, did you know it's just a joint committee between Democrats and Republicans? They don't allow third parties in. Not at all. If you don't believe in one, if you're not part of one of those two parties, good fucking luck getting your voice heard in that particular organization, and good luck getting into a debate by result. I mean, it's not hard to see that there are two parties trying to maintain control, and at this point, they're getting so divergent that they want to try to take control from each other. So that there is only one. American politics is not Highlander. There can't be only one. It doesn't work. It hurts us badly. In fact, James Madison prevented James Monroe from banning political parties and converting to a consensus democracy 
because he believed that there needed to be at least two parties to balance out things, two ideas and two divergences, so that there's a support and an opposition. I don't 100% agree with Madison on this. I believe personally there should be anywhere from four to five parties, three to five parties more rather. It really depends on the size and divergence of ideals and beliefs. I believe that a most effective democracy runs anywhere from three to five parties though. But the consensus department, democracy abanishment part is what really bothers me. Consensus democracy would be much more helpful, especially when t determining bills and laws and things like that, because it helps find the most agreeable option. Of course, this works best with multiple choice, but technically, you can do it with A or B options. I mean, you can have a preference for both or neither. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. We're going to do consensus democracy another day, yet another cornerstone of our personal beliefs here. But lastly, what we need to be doing for sure is diverting some state and federal budget into nonpartisan political education. Basically, we need to be giving people a crash course in American politics before we just throw them out in there. You know how many people don't actually know what's really going on? There was a guy, a huge avid Trump supporter, who was actually involved in the Capitol riot insurrection, by the way. He actually tried to run against a state representative by running in the wrong race in New Hampshire. This actually happened. Guy's last name was Riddle, I believe. But yeah, he wanted to unseat a state representative that he didn't like, and chose to run for the wrong seat. Because he didn't have the education. And it, part of the reason we need state and federal funding on this is because state politics are different from federal politics. There are a lot of similarities, mostly because the Constitution's guarantees of a Republican form of government. But a large part of the reason states have unique political systems is to fit our unique to fit our unique situations. Fun fact, Nebraska has a unicameral system. In fact, it's technically nonpartisan. There are political tendencies between Republicans and Democrats, but officially it's nonpartisan. Now you don't have a system like that somewhere else, like say California, where their political situation is quite different from Nebraska. Their economic situation is different from Nebraska. Their, their important issues are different from Nebraska. But this is kind of why we have the states and have the state ideas. And all the further reason we need to fund for political education of how our system works. Yeah, we have civics classes that go in the whole basics of it. And we have Schoolhouse Rock that tries to explain it a bit and it does pretty good. But it's not addressing the reality, it's not addressing the current issues of the time, it's not addressing the real problems right away. It's not saying, hey, this is what matters right now to our country, this is why it matters to these people, this is why these people oppose it. What do you think? Basically, we need a nonpartisan politics for dummies class that, not mandated, but should probably be integrated within, to the, edu within the educational system. Because 
I believe that people should be educated when they vote. But if we're not providing them with the opportunity to get educated properly, well, then we're just screwing them. It's part of the reason why ranked choice voting is getting a slow start. It's because everyone's pushing for it. But a lot of the proponents are also pushing for education measures towards how it works. I mean, dear God. Did you see the mayor of New York try to explain it? The man was trying to explain it with pizza toppings. Pizza toppings. Just look up ranked choice voting on Wikipedia. It'll explain it to you just fine. Though honestly, we need a political a nonpartisan political education group pushing for some idea, pushing for this to at least get it integrated into the education system. Maybe like a mandatory civics class. We also believe that logic should be being, like a basic intro to logic class should be mandatory too. That's a whole nother thing. We'll actually go over our whole beliefs on education later in another episode. That'll be fun. But yeah, political education. Simple as that. We need to gain these things, push harder, and realize that if we stay still, our system's gonna break. We need to start adjusting things. That machine's been running for 200 and some odd years. We need to replace some of the parts. No machine, no well-oiled machine, no nation, no people survive without some sort of change and adaption to their current situations. Thank you for listening to us today. We're going to tell you now we're going on a break up until July 7th. It's mostly like a temporary hiatus to come up with some fresh new ideas and avoid a little bit of burnout. It's starting to become a pretty busy summer. We end up doing quite a bit around this time of year. And we don't want to like try to stress and fight and do a million things at once. We will be back, though, on July 7th with a new episode of Ideology of the Month of Marxism. That'll be fun, right? Get to learn about the original, original full communist belief. And we're hoping to have possible guest and friend of the brigade, Jacob, Sarah. She, they are a uh, friend of ours from way back. And very, very well versed on pretty much all strains of communist ideology. Like, they have studied it up and down, all around, left ways, right ways, up ways, down ways. They're also a traditional Marxist and, well, not a traditional Marxist, just a Marxist. It would probably be able to go way more extensively into it than I could. Anyways, we hope to have that for you July 7th. If not, we'll at very least have some explainer of Marxism as best as we can. And thank you for listening. As always, you can share your thoughts and comments with us on our Facebook page, at Mongoose Brigade. And... Yeah. If you want to donate to our Anchor page, you will find that at anchor.fm backslash bobby, B-A-H-B-I dot Barnett. I believe that's the website or link to it. Let me double check that for you. Oh, just can't do that while recording. I'm sorry. Actually, hold on. I got another way I can look this up. Anywho, to continue wrapping up, we'll get to this still, don't worry. It's what we gotta do. We've got to be a lot better. Okay, the uh, link if you want to support us, that's totally your call. We 
do not need you to fund us. This is more of a personal passion project than anything, really. If you want to support us, that would be great, but you don't need to or anything like that. Don't worry about having to. But it's anchor.fm backslash Bobby, B-A-H-B-I dash Barnett, B-A-R-N-E-T-T backslash support. And if you want to donate there, you can. If not, that's perfectly fine. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be back July 7th. Thank you very much.